This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. We are continuing our sermon series in 1 Corinthians. And today we're going to be exploring this idea of people pleasing. Nobody wants to be a people pleaser, right? It's usually a sign of weakness, of being a pushover. And we might understand that there's some sort of boundary between being a people pleaser um, or differentiation between being a people pleaser and uh, being a good friend, somebody who helps someone out. Merriam-Webster defines people pleasing like this, a person who has an emotional need to please others at the expense of his or her own needs or desires. Emotionally needy for others' affirmation at their own expense. I'm sure we've all felt that. Uh, we've all felt involved in people pleasing. We've all felt like we've had to capitulate to that in some sense. And so we're always like, man, I don't want to be a people pleaser. But today what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 10 is that Paul says you should try to please people. Everyone in everything that you do. And what we're going to see is that Paul's definition of people pleasing is not going to quite overlap with what we understand people pleasing to be. And so we're going to investigate what it means uh, to, to maybe be a biblically, bi biblically people please. So too many adverbs or something like that. Too many LYs. Um, to biblically people please. Paul uses this language. Uh, he says, as I said, I try to please everyone in everything that I do. But the key difference comes at the end of our passage, which we're going to read in a second, that they may be saved. Now that saving language, when we think of being saved, we think of sharing the gospel. And I don't know if you knew this, uh, but the English word gospel uh, is a transliteration of another word that simply means good news. So when we're talking about saving, we're talking about sharing good news. And when Paul is, is talking about people-pleasing, he's talking about it in relation to sharing good news. And it actually makes some sort of sense that you should try to please people with good news. Good news should be good. And Paul's going to describe what that looks like to the Corinthians, and we're going to learn from that. He's going to point out three key ways um, how to make the, uh, the good news pleasing, to have exceptional evangelism, you might say. Uh, and it is causing no unnecessary offense, seeking to bless, and that it's not about you. So how do we have good news? How do we share good news? These will be all three points today. We seek no unnecessary offense. We seek to bless, and we recognize that it's not about us. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, which comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23 and going through 11 verse 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to, his, to, to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? 
If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This ends the reading of God's word, and it is good for us to hear it. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So as I said, we're continuing our sermon series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've seen in the last few sermons, we've been talking about this idea of Christian freedom. And we've actually seen that God gives us an immense amount of Christian freedom. Uh, he allows us to choose between those things that are good and that those choices can actually be ours because God has already given us his best. They're not hidden behind some uh, trick door about whether or not you know, you're gonna get the wrong thing. Um, he's already given us his best in Christ Jesus. Uh, we've seen that this choice, however, is regulated by love, that sometimes we regulate our freedoms uh, in, in our choices out of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's going to continue today that this freedom is also limited for the sake of salvation, for the sake of evangelism, for the sake of witness and testifying. As I mentioned, look at verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. And the first thing that he's going to point out about that is that it con concerns uh, causing no unnecessary offense. When you're going in for an interview for a job that you really want, what do we tend to do? We rehearse mission statements of the company. We try to figure out how our gifts and talents align with that. We, we look at the job description and we think about those, those places in which we fit and why we're perfect for it and why we want it so badly. We also shower, shave, dress up. We put on deodorant, cologne, perfume, but not too much. Why? Why do we do all these things? Because we don't want to cause offense. <laughs> we want to remove any barriers to what our actual mission is. If we're trying to make ourselves seem like good news for this position, we want to remove anything that might get in the way any obstacle that's not critical to that mission. Now, some background for Paul. As I mentioned last week, a lot of the meat that was in Corinth apparently was sacrificed, uh, were animals that were brought to be sacrificed at pagan altars, maybe to Apollos. And eating this meat caused Corinthian Christians some uh, moral qualms. They're like, are we allowed to eat this meat that's been sacrificed to another god? Because what was happening is they sacrificed the animal and then they'd cut up the meat, the priest would take some, and then they kind of sell the rest off at the marketplace to fund operations at the temple. So then there's this meat that's been sacrificed uh, to a uh, pagan deity. Now in chapter 8, Paul has already said that you are free to eat the meat because the, the pagan deity is not real. So you can eat the meat if you want. But we also saw that in chapter 8 he said, but it needs to be qualified by love of those whose consciences may be bound. If you've got a new Christian that you're around uh, and they, they're they, they're so close to that pagan worship that they just can't do it, then don't eat the meat. You do violence to their conscience. Now in chapter 10, Paul's going to give kind of this equivocating answer again. 
He's going to say that sometimes you eat the meat that is offered to you. And if you pay attention uh, to the context here, it's what, 27? If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner. So his idea is kind of this, right? An unbeliever invites you over to dinner and offers you this meat, and you're looking at that cut of meat, and you go, there's only one place that that came from. Uh, that came from this, this pagan place of worship. And uh, Paul says, eat it. Verse 25. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Paul says you're free to eat that meat. Cause no unnecessary offense. But sometimes, Paul will say, verses 28 and 29, you don't eat the meat. And now exactly what's happening here is uh, up for debate a little bit. It could be a Gentile host or an unbelieving host uh, who, who is duplicitous. So someone invited you over to their house for dinner being like, hey, I'd love to hear more about your gospel. But really, they're trying to trip you up. And like, I wonder if I can get them to eat this food, to worship this other God. So that's kind of one option of, of taking these verses in, in 28 and 29. Or it might be that the host continues to be genuine and is interested, is not thinking about it, but is providing a delightful meal, um, not being bound by their conscience, but has invited you along with some other Christian brothers and sisters whose consciences are bound. In which case, Paul says, you don't eat the meat out of love for your brothers and sisters. Paul says, sometimes you eat and sometimes you don't. Again, this meat situation is a little bit difficult for us to find parallels in our culture. And part of that is because we don't have the same kind of paganism. Uh, we don't have maybe outright idol worship. But I'd like you to notice something in verse 31. Paul says that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. You see, in Paul's mindset, every single thing that we do has the potential to give glory to God or not. Every single thing that we do, eating and drinking, has the potential to bear testimony to his goodness and love or not. Everything that we do is attached somehow to worship. And that is why the next words in verse 32, give no offense, should shock us a little. I have multiple questions about whether or not we in this room give glory to God in every single thing that we do. And in fact, given the fact that we just confessed our sins together, um, and we all declared our dependence upon Jesus, we know that we don't give glory to God in everything that we do. So what I find interesting, when I get to this section of the, pa of, of the passage, right? I'm reading through it, and I get to verse 32. Give, do all for the glory of God. I'm like, yes. Give no offense to anyone that you meet, Jews, Greeks, or the household of God. So he's including like Christians and non-Christians. Everybody that the uh, Corinthians would have thought of, all the major people groups, categories. And he's saying, don't offend anybody. And I don't know about you, but my initial response is, yeah, but aren't we going to be offensive sometimes? Doesn't Jesus say we're going to be offensive? Doesn't Jesus say that he's going to be a stumbling block? You know, I often hear Christians talking about their lives um, as if they're fighting a war, their Christian life, right? And, and sometimes it can feel like we're losing the war. And the Bible uses war imagery to describe the Christian life. Uh, it says that there are powers and principalities. It says that we should strap on armor. But I think we would all agree that if we're in a war, 
we should follow the commands, the orders of our commander-in-chief, right? 1 Corinthians 10 is God's word to us, and he says, don't offend anybody. Now, I've never been in the military. Uh, some of you that have could maybe correct me. I would imagine that, um, you know, if, if we're in a, in a time of war, uh, and I've got a commanding officer who gives me an order, and I respond with, yeah, but, that's probably not going to go well for me. I'm just, I'm assuming, I don't know, uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, but the idea is that you follow the orders, whatever they're given. So, of course, we have these commands in other parts of Scripture. But before we try to make sense of what God sells, says elsewhere, before we go to the yabbats, I'd like for us to just pause and hear what God is saying right here. Don't give offense to anyone. I would venture to say that many of us live our lives relatively inconsiderate of the offenses that we give to other people, especially if we're giving offense to non-Christians. We're like, of course they're going to be offended. Sometimes we even take the tone that we should seek to offend. Seems to me that the most Christian thing to do would be to follow a direct order. So now that we've taken the time, just a little bit of time, <laughs> to hear God's commands before we get to the yabbats, maybe we can get to the yabbats. Uh, let's acknowledge what Paul is not saying. Uh, he's not saying that you should uh, capitulate into sin in order to win people. Uh, in, in chapter 9, verse 21, Paul says that he will do whatever he can to win people, but that he will not go outside of God's law. And in verse 22 of chapter 10, which we didn't print, but is, is right above where we're at, he even says that violating your own conscience, so in things that might be free, uh, to violate your own conscience about it would be wrong to do as well. It provokes the Lord's jealousy. Of course, Paul gives boundaries to this. And yet, he still says, you should seek to give no offense. Now, I think part of the problem that we kind of jump immediately to the yabbats uh, is, is mostly because we have tried to share good news um, and we've received maybe hatred. We've received persecution. It's made us unsettled. And so we assume that seeking to avoid offense would just be capitulating, right? It would just be kind of giving in to their demands. Uh, it would be a weak stance. Um, there's a phrase that I often hear, and I've even said myself, and I don't want to say that it's wrong to use in every situation. It is, but I think we, we might overuse it. Um, and it's this phrase we use that it isn't love to ignore their sin. And that's true. It wouldn't be love to ignore someone's sin. It wouldn't be love to never say anything because you're afraid. But maybe... There's a time and a place to communicate that truth in love. And the Bible says we communicate truth in love. That doesn't create unnecessary offense. And maybe as a comparison, is dressing up for an interview just sucking up? Is it just backside kissing, capitulating to the demands of the man? We would all agree that sometimes it can be. 
There's like suck-ups, you know, that want to get dressed up and try to always put themselves forward uh, in order to promote their own agenda. But under normal circumstances with mature adults, we understand that dressing up for an interview is actually the most pleasing and responsible thing to do. It shows respect not only for the potential employer, but also for yourself. That's why we do it. Jesus made no unnecessary offenses. There's a story of Jesus with a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus. Now, tax collectors were fiercely hated because they were thieves, um, especially in the Jewish community. The, Jew, the Jewish community, uh, so Rome is, is over them, right? They would pick some people to be tax collectors or they'd volunteer, and these tax collectors would then cheat the taxes a little to give them their pay. And so they would cheat their own brothers and sisters, their own people, uh, to collect these taxes, and then they had Rome's army to come back it up. So they could extort almost as much as they wanted. But when Jesus comes up to Zacchaeus, he tells Zacchaeus that he must visit his house that day. It's the first thing that he says. And if you're reading in that passage, uh, what you'll see is that the crowds grumble. Part of the reason that they grumble is because they wanted to see Jesus rip this guy a new one. They wanted to see Jesus cause offense. But the first thing that Jesus says to Zacchaeus is, I have to come to your house today. Is Jesus sucking up? Is he capitulating to Zacchaeus' demands? Or does Jesus, in order that Zacchaeus might be saved, give no unnecessary offense? Now, of course, people were offended by Jesus. And of course, Jesus tells us that if you follow me, they are going to persecute you. But let us not forget the immense language of the Bible. Another place in Romans, this is Paul again writing to a different group of people. As far as it depends on you, let people be pleased with you. We've also got the language of Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. You're supposed to hate your enemies, right? Now, Putting this into application is highly difficult. It's highly nuanced. It's highly contextual. That's why Paul says sometimes you eat the meat and sometimes you don't. It's incredibly difficult to discern, and I'm going to venture to guess that a lot of times we're going to get it wrong, that maybe we should have said something a little bit harder. One theologian from 500 years ago named John Calvin said it this way, who Paul is reproving is the forwardness of those who of their own accord give occasion for offense and hurt weak consciences when neither necessity nor expedience calls for it. They cause unnecessary offense. And I've wondered, you know, as, as Christians who believe that the Bible is the word of God, as we talk about sexuality and gender with our culture, often incredibly offensive. And I'm, I wonder if our disposition is such as Christians that we seek to cause no offense and let Jesus be the offended one. Or if we like to add little pieces to it. I'm wondering what it would look like for us to have interactions such that the outside world would know that Christians do they go as far as they can for someone's salvation. 
and they let Jesus speak for himself. We are people who like to make unnecessary offenses necessary, thinking that we're doing the right thing. Jesus said if you follow him, you'll be persecuted. It's true. Uh, Jesus, as our commander-in-chief, also told us to strap on armor. And he also told us not to cause unnecessary offense. He has said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you know why Jesus, as a commander in war, would humanize his enemy? Why would you want to do that? Did you know that the war is over? That Jesus won? That he rose and conquered the grave? That was the nail in the coffin. Of course we strap on our armor and we follow our king's command. But our evangelism, we're not fighting a war that we're worried about losing. We've already won. We wear armor to protect ourselves from those straggling camps of people that haven't heard that Jesus is the victor or choose to continue fighting even though they know that the battle is over or the war is over, the battle is still being fought. We do evangelism with armor on because we would like to see more people defect from the opposing side, to defect from death itself into life and strap on armor. We give no unnecessary offense because we're not in a battle for our own lives. We're in a battle for theirs. We know that ours is secure. We know that there's neither height nor depth that can separate us from Christ's love. We're fighting for them. Our first point in delivering a pleasing gospel or evangelizing with exceptionally good news is to give no unnecessary offense. And our second point is connected to it, but it has a slightly different emphasis. Um, you guys have probably heard about the love languages, the five love languages. Um, usually it's used between couples, and it helps them understand uh, how another person receives appreciation. Uh, and you know, there's, there tends to be five uh, that they delineate, quality time, thoughtful gifts, words of affirmation, acts of service, and physical touch. And usually people lean into one or maybe two of these as ways that they receive that they are being appreciated. And it's a helpful tool, and I don't want it to be too uh, reductionistic, but it's basically a saying that you have to be speaking the same language. For something to be good, if you say that you love this person, you've got to be speaking the same language. Paul in verse 33 says that evangelism that's oriented towards the other person has to be speaking the same language just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do. Paul is saying that evangelism should actually take account of someone's love language. Now, again, I don't want it to be reduced to just those five things. Um, really, what it means is this. Good news, as we share it, should reveal something that was missing in their life. Zacchaeus clearly was not favored among the population of the Jews. Uh, and maybe because he was rich, he had some sort of friends, but they were probably just friends that wanted a piece of his money right? To benefit from his riches. But whatever it is, it's clear that Zacchaeus was certainly isolated from, from, from the community that he lived in. And I don't think it's unfair to say that the best news that Zacchaeus received that day was that Jesus himself would say, I want to show you what friendship is like. I have to go into your house today. 
You see, Jesus saw Zacchaeus in isolation and showed him what the good news, not, not only what it is in words, but what it felt like, what it tasted like. And for Zacchaeus, following Christ meant experiencing real friendship. I think we're often incredibly oblivious to how the good news might personally change the person's life that we're speaking to. We like to use evangelistic methods and tools, things that are awfully generic, but we don't spend a lot of time praying wondering, what would it look like if this person started following Jesus? What would be better about their life? Is it good news? What good does the good news actually bring? Do we take the time to see what is really lacking in their lives? What we might be able to show them with our own acts of friendship and service. Many people don't even entertain the idea that, that there might be something better. They, they say, I have no need for Jesus. Maybe our duty is actually to see where their need is. What are they yearning for? That they're trying to fill with the wrong thing over and over and over again. And can we show them what goodness actually looks like? In word and deed. Christians have historically called this type of uh, pleasing people blessing. To seek to bless someone else. To show them what good news actually feels like. So our first point was that pleasing evangelism should not be offensive, and our second is that it should actually bless them. And there's one more point that we can learn from uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, you know people have a habit of making a story about themselves. I think we all have this tendency, and in some ways that's just how we like, communicate and share stories. It's like, oh, you've done that? I've done this thing too, you know? So it's not all bad. But sometimes it can be really ugly. Uh, you can think of the person who always has to like, one-up the story, right? Their stories are always gotta be greater. Uh, another one is trivializing. So an example I've heard is this. Someone shares that their loved one has just passed away. And the person that they shared it with then responds, oh yeah, I know how that is. My cat just died recently. And I'm sure that the loss of a cat can be sad. Um, we're gonna kind of understand degrees here of maybe a spouse <laughs> and a cat, right? It's trivializing the loss. It seems funny to look at it in these, these ways, but I've recently done this. Recently did this with a friend who shared that he was considering a ministry move. Uh, so he's a pastor as well. Uh, he's considered changing from this job that he loves because uh, to move closer to his mom whose health is failing. And I joked that Trinity Church is hiring. And Puerto Rico is nowhere near where his mom lives. At best, I was selfishly seeking to diffuse tension not knowing how to console a hurting friend in that moment. At worst, I wanted to one-up his story with my own and build a platform for sharing my own needs and my own concerns. Either way, I made the story about me and my own advantage. Verse 33 again, Paul says, not seeking my own advantage. When we make the story about ourselves, we're seeking to promote ourselves. And we can all do this in various ways. And of course it's, you know, forgivable. And I, I went to him and I, you know, a day later or so, and I was like, I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> I, I shouldn't have done that. I'm, I'm really sorry that your mom is sick. Uh, is, there, is there any way I can help and pray for you? You know, of course, of course they're forgivable and you can make restitution. But one of the reasons that our evangelism isn't successful is because we make it about us. 
We're worried about whether or not we will say the right things, whether or not we'll utilize this one chance. We're worried about whether or not we might be misunderstood and people might believe the wrong thing about Christianity. We're worried about having the largest reach, the best platform. We're thinking about our own advantage, what we look like, whether or not we will be successful. You know, Jesus was Zacchaeus. He says that he came to seek and save the lost. And we might say that the only part that Jesus invites us into that is the seeking. We can't do the saving. That tells us something very important about the story and something very important about evangelism. Jesus saves. Our evangelism fundamentally isn't about us. It's about that other person needing Jesus. Get out of the way. And I'd like to say that this actually allows us an immense amount of freedom. If you don't believe me, it means that you don't have to have all the answers. You can say, I don't know, that's really interesting. I'd like to get back to you on that. Or yes, Paul does say that sometimes we're going to be persecuted and also that we should seek to give no offense. And we live in the middle of some here, and we're trying to figure this out, and sometimes I screw it up. There's an immense amount of freedom to say that Jesus is the Savior and not you. See, of course some people are going to be offended at good news, but Paul, our, Paul's argument is that you better make sure that they're offended at Jesus, and you better make sure that they're not stumbled by you. <laughs> make sure you don't get in the way. Jesus delights to invite you in, but man, we like to make it about us. And of course, this line gets blurry because Paul in 11.1 says that we're going to follow Paul as he follows Christ, and so as we follow Christ, we're persecuted, we're doing things like him, and so it's hard to discern whether or not the offense is really with us or with Jesus. And I've got to admit, I don't have easy answers. It's a nuanced conversation and prayerful consideration between you and God and you and the other person. Where you say, did I do wrong here? They were clearly offended. Did I get in the way? Were they really offended at Jesus? Paul says in Romans, uh, very much like 1 Corinthians 10, that we are not to please ourselves, but please our neighbor. And he goes on, and he says, because in Romans he goes on, Christ did not please himself, but he bore the reproach of many. You see, Jesus not only modeled for us what uh, correct evangelism, people-pleasing evangelism might look like, he also made it possible for us to live it. And here's how. We showed up to that interview offensive. We stunk. We did not have what it took to please God or please others. And Jesus covered our offenses. Jesus saw what we were lacking in our lives, what we were oblivious to. We didn't even know that life could be better. And Jesus came in and he said, you don't even know how good it can be. Do you know what God has made you for? There is goodness in here. There is goodness in me. Taste and see that it is good. And even though the story is about him, it's about Jesus himself, when he was punched, he turned the other cheek. When people ridiculed him, he said, you have said so. When threatened with his life, he gave it up. 
he didn't seek his own advantage, but that of many. And he bore the reproach of many, and he bore the reproach of you and me. Because in the offensive death of the only one ever who has been unoffensive in the eyes of God, he purchased us. He purchased us from that other side of the enemy where death and violence reigned and purchased us to come into the light. And seeing him arisen in glory, we understand and can taste and see that life is good. That us giving an unoffensive gospel is pleasing in his sight. Not because we capitulate on what he says, because we make sure we get out of the way, just like Jesus did. <laughs> Jesus laid down his own life on behalf of many. You see, the good news, the good news is that Jesus is for us. The good news is that Jesus is pleased with us. Of course we needed rescuing. Of course we needed change from the inside out. But he's delighted in us. Not ashamed or embarrassed. And of course, we're still confused about what good for us actually looks like. And we need him to teach us time and time and time again what this good news means. But the good news is that Jesus Christ looks at us and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, please, please forgive us for the ways that we have gotten in the way. Father, allow us the humility to go before others where we know that we got in the way and confess confess that we did wrong by them, that we caused unnecessary offense, that we made the story about us. Father, allow us to experience your peace, to know that even in messing up in evangelism, you still pursue us, and you still love us, and you still call us to do it. Give us your perseverance. Give us your long-suffering. Give us your faith, O Lord, a faith that is not easily shaken or deterred, that is not defensive, but confident in your providence, confident in your goodness, confident in the fact that you have actually defeated the enemy. And I pray that we might all experience your goodness, a goodness so rich that it overflows out of our lives into the lives of others, and that might be good news to all around us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.